Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, we continue with our new series in 2023 uh, through the book of Hebrews, having come off the book of Leviticus last year. And uh, once again, this letter, or we might say sermon notes, this sermon from the author of the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are struggling They are struggling under persecution, persecution past and looming persecution in the near future. And they are questioning whether Jesus is worth it, whether allegiance to him, worship of him is sustaining, is all that it is said to be. And so this pastor, author, puts pen to paper to say, yes, stick with Jesus. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. And so our theme this year, then gospel fulfillment, maintaining an upward focus is far too easy to be distracted, as we looked at last Sunday, by all the things going on around us. News does not seem to be good, generally speaking. And we can be troubled about a great many things. And we can be fearful. But the author of Hebrews presents to us week in and week out as we read and study and hear this preached. Jesus is not only enough, he is more than enough. He is better. He is supreme. He is all. Now it is said that preaching should do one of two things. Comfort the afflicted or afflict the comfortable. The best preaching does both simultaneously. But it isn't interesting how the author slash pastor who has brought us this letter to the Hebrews, this sermon to the Hebrews, begins by comforting the afflicted. And then last week, we noted in the first four verses of chapter two that he afflicts the comfortable. Do not neglect this great salvation. Do not let it slide to secondary importance. Do not elevate anything else above Jesus Christ and the great salvation we have in him. And now for the rest of this chapter, he's going to return to comforting the afflicted. Because he wants to let us know that of anybody else in the universe, Jesus understands. That is our title for our sermon this morning, Understanding. Have you ever had somebody say to you, I know exactly how you feel? Has that happened to anybody? So maybe it's in a time of grief or loss, a time of pain or suffering, and somebody with all the best intentions comes to you and says, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly what you're going through. I understand. Now it's meant to bring comfort. It's meant to help. And perhaps in a small way it does because it can help to know that somebody else has walked the path that we are just starting. This is unfamiliar territory to us. Grief of a different kind, pain and suffering we have not yet personally experienced and it can be of some comfort to know that somebody has already walked this path ahead of us and can help us as we try to navigate the same. But isn't there at least a little bit of discomfort in that phrase? 
because it's not true fully. Nobody can actually say, I know exactly how you feel, because nobody but us knows how exactly we feel. Nobody can actually say fully, I know exactly what you're going through, because only we know what we are going through. And so there is a sense in which it falls short of its full intention. It does not bring us the comfort that we were looking for fully. And yet there is one. There is one who can say, and not just mean it, but have it be 100% true. I know exactly what you're going through. I understand how you feel. I understand your pain and your suffering. I have walked that road before you. And that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He understands you, and he understands me. He understands the good times, and he understands the bad. He has walked the path ahead of us. He has become one of us. There's nothing else out there like this. Everything else is about ascending, becoming better, going up improving the right direction. Only the truth says you can't do that. You are unable to lift yourself up. You are unable to make it. You are unable to attain perfection. Cannot be done. And so perfection comes down. Jesus descends to us. He becomes one of us, enrobes himself in human flesh. He was 100%, is 100% human and 100% God. And as deity and as full humanity, he can always say, I fully understand what it is that you are going through. I get it. And so the author of Hebrews, continuing this sort of first look at how Jesus is superior and that he is superior to angels, returns to the theme of Jesus' superiority, but oddly to us, perhaps at first blush, he does so by highlighting Jesus' humanity. You would expect that he would continue on with where he left off in chapter one by again elevating Christ's deity and his supremacy. And yet there is a superiority in Christ, not just because he is God, but because he is also human. And so in the first place this morning then, Jesus understands our destiny in verses five through nine. Let's read those together. Hebrews chapter two, starting to read at verse five. And once again, if you're new with us and did not bring a Bible, that's completely fine. We have lots of them around because everything we do here is based on the word of God. Somewhere in the chairs in front of you, there should be a Bible and Hebrews chapter 2 is on page 941 or 942. Hebrews chapter 2, starting to read of verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, 
we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of God. So Jesus understands our destiny. To just have life is amazing. As was mentioned already this morning, to see and experience God's creation, the ocean and many other aspects of it, to have relationships with fellow image bearers, a boilerplate status quo life is, is really a thrilling, amazing thing to have. And yet I think all of us have this sense, this nagging sense that we were made for something more that we were made for more than just the daily routine that we fulfill. There's something bigger. It's attributed to Augustine, we're not exactly sure that he was the one that originated it, but there is a phrase that says, there is a God-shaped hole in every human heart, and only God can fill it. C.S. Lewis said, if we're not comfortable here on planet Earth, perhaps it is because we were made for something bigger and greater. There's a sense in us, that we are noble, that we are who God said we were, that we are the stewards of planet Earth, that we're made for something more. Jesus understands that. And so we see in verse 5, as well as in the end of 7 into 8, we were made to reign. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, the author of Hebrews says, but it was to humans. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Humanity was created not just to exist, but to be the image bearers of God, to be his representatives to all the rest that he created, to rule and reign in a benevolent fashion, to be noble to be kind and caring and compassionate and to be merciful and gracious and holy and righteous. All this and so much more that God is, man was created to be. And Jesus understands that. And yet, we are undeserving. It has been testified somewhere, and the author of Hebrews is not forgetting that he's quoting Psalm 8 as we read to start our service this morning or start the music portion of our service this morning, our call to worship. But his point in all of this, and one of the reasons why I believe he did not even give his own name to what he wrote, is that all that is written, that is scripture, comes from God. It's not that he had momentary amnesia. He's writing to Jewish Christians who would know exactly what he's talking about. And it's from God himself. And the question is asked, what is man that you are mindful of him? It's a legitimate question. The highest highs have been reached by humanity. But humanity is also responsible for the lowest of lows. There's no greater joy in this life that can be brought to us than by our fellow human beings. And there's no greater sorrow that can be foisted upon us by our fellow human beings. Humans were created to do amazing good and that they are capable of despicable evil. And so the writer of Psalms points this out. 
God, why would you care about humans? Of all things to care about. Humans who are so undeserving. And Jesus himself then in the third place identifies with our frailty. As humanity for a little while was made lower than the angels, Jesus Christ the same. We see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus. We just came through the Christmas season wherein we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, God and very God, King of kings and Lord of lords, became human. Helpless baby born to Mary. He did that and continues to do that for us. Jesus understands. He gets it. He remembers our frame, that we are but dust. He walked with humanity, interacted with them, rubbed shoulders with them on a daily basis. For the three years of his earthly ministry, surrounded himself with at the very least the 12 disciples and others. He knows the things that we can do, both good and also bad. He knows what it's like to have Peter say, Jesus, I would die for you and mean it. And hours later, deny that he even knows him three times. Jesus sees the disciples speak of him and sees people come to faith in him through their witness and then sees those same disciples doubt that Jesus can even provide bread for the hungry on more than one occasion. He sees us have faith and he sees us have fear and Jesus has experienced all that it is to be human. He is fully human. He un understands and identifies with our frailty, though he himself is not subject to that frailty, as the author of Hebrews will tell us in chapter 4. But Jesus gives us hope. Notice how verse 9 continues. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus doesn't just look upon our suffering and our pain our frailty and our sin, our rebellion and our addictions and our shortcomings with indifference. Nor does he look on them exclusively with judgment. He looks on us with compassion and actually does something about our deepest need. Our greatest problem is not that our politics needs fixing. Our greatest issue is not that we have an incorrect view of climate change. Our deepest issue is not our sexuality or any other things about us other than the actual deepest need, which is that we are sinners. Rebels against our creator. Feeble, finite creatures who believe themselves to be and act as though they are if, like and could replace the infinite God. That is who we are. Our deepest need is that we are disconnected from the one who made us and loves us. We are rebel sinners against him, and he does not stand idly by, but he comes and does something about that and gives us hope. 
Jesus Christ understands who we were made to be and he understands why we're not like that and he came to do something about it. And notice in the fifth place this morning that Jesus is with us in the waiting. Back up to verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We live in the already not yet. And it's a difficult space to occupy. Because we know what Christ has done for us, if we know that here this morning, and it's our prayer that you do, we know what Christ is going to do for us in the future, and yet we occupy this space in which there is seemingly at times overwhelming pain and suffering and evil and hardship. It is a legitimate question that people have if Christ is ruling and reigning, if Christ is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good, why is the world still a mess, and perhaps more of a mess now than it's ever been, or at least we're more aware of the mess, thanks to the access we have to the World Wide Web. But Jesus has not abandoned us. He has a plan for the waiting. We hate waiting. It is our least favorite thing to do. We will do everything in our power to avoid waiting. And yet God has much to teach us in the waiting. We do not know all the reasons why God delays his coming, but a major one that is given for us multiple times in scripture is that God is long-suffering. He is patient and he is kind. Those who knew him best in the Old Testament and those who knew him best in the New knew that first of all he truly is holy, holy, holy but also that he is patient, long-suffering, and kind. He's giving us opportunity to come to, into relationship with him. He's giving our neighbors and our fellow students and our family members and our friends time to come to him. And things getting worse is intended to show us many things, one of which is that we are not God. We do a very poor job when we are in control. Thank God we never truly are. So Jesus understands who we were made to be, but he also understands who we currently are. And so notice verses 10 through 13. Jesus understands our suffering. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus understands our suffering. We struggle, and most of the time it's because we are the problem, and Jesus gets that. He understands that. Have you been betrayed? Jesus understands betrayal at a level more deeply than you can possibly fathom. 
Have you been slandered, gossiped about? Have you had somebody hold a grudge against you? Have you suffered pain and loss? Have you wept as someone that you loved or deeply than you thought possible has lowered into the earth having passed? Whatever it is that you are suffering and struggling with, Jesus has understanding of that. Are you struggling with temptation and sin? Jesus knows what you are going through having been tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness. Jesus gets it. He understands our suffering. But notice in verse 10 that Jesus suffered more than any of us. It's fitting, the author of Hebrews says, that the one who brought all things into existence should make the pioneer of our salvation, the founder of our salvation, the first fruits of our salvation, perfect, through suffering, not perfect in the sense of morally perfect, Jesus already is that since he is God and very God. But experientially, he did all that he was asked to do. And none of us in here, and no human from the past or on into the future, will ever truly understand Jesus' cry from Psalm 22 while he was on the cross My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? The depth of that suffering is not something that we can fully understand and appreciate. And yet it was that suffering that brought many to glory, brought many to salvation. It is the only hope that we have. And so whatever suffering we may be going through, Jesus understands. And he is one of us. Verse 11 through 13, the author of Hebrews is driving home this point. Jesus is human. He's one of us. For the one who does the sanctifying and those who are being sanctified are all of one source. That is an amazing statement. We are not God, but God has become one of us. He's become human. And so Jesus is God he is our Lord, but he is also our elder brother. He says that. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Quoting from the back half of Psalm 22, which is much easier to read and process than the first half of Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus identifies with us. As his brothers, we are his brothers and sisters. We are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. This is mind-boggling, this grace. He came down to our depravity to raise us up to his glory. He's one of us. He understands our current suffering. But lastly this morning, Jesus also understands our shame. It is very true that much of what happens in our world happens to us as a result of sin in general, but oftentimes outside of our control. But it is also true that much of what happens happens because of us. 
And we are not only aware of what we were created to be, who we were created to be, we are aware of how far we fall short of that and how much of that is our fault. Jesus does not only understand our suffering, but he fully understands our shame. Verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, not that God paid a ransom to Satan or that he is over God in any way, shape, or form. Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus solves our deepest need. Verse 17 is a powerful verse in Scripture. What an amazingly concise description of one of the roles of Christ in that he is our merciful and faithful high priest. And what a glorious summation of the gospel. He became like his brothers so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. The priest's role, as we discovered throughout the book of Leviticus all of last year, was to go before God in service of the people. On behalf of those like him, he would bring their offerings before a thrice holy God so that their sins could be atoned for, and their relationship with God could be secure. Jesus does and is the same. And he makes propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. He is the one who offers the sacrifice and he also is the sacrifice. He solves our deepest need. To the ones who are under the power of death, fear death, and subject to lifelong slavery, Christ has come. Now, once again, our greatest problem is not our politics, it's not our bank account, it's not ultimately our relationships or even our choices. Our greatest problem is who we are. At our core, our nature is sinful, and thus all we do is acts of sin, because it's who we are. That's what needs to change, and we can't change that. We are powerless to solve our deepest problem, and that's why Jesus came to do it on our behalf. And notice then in verse 18, Jesus also gives us hope. Read this verse. Read it. Quietly as I read it out loud, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Where do we often go in our shame? We run away. When we've sinned against someone, we avoid them. 
when we've disappointed someone, our parents or someone else, we want to hide from them. What is the first activity Adam and Eve do? They hide from God. And yet, what does the author of Hebrews remind those to whom he is writing, which includes us this morning? When you are suffering, when you are sinning, confess it and run to him. He has been tempted. Therefore, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thanks be to God that when Satan himself tempted Jesus, Jesus stood in the face of temptation and did not cave. He did not give in. He was tempted like we are yet without sin because he is without sin. Any temptation you have faced, you have not faced it as strongly as Jesus has because if you're anything like me, by which I mean human, you have given in at some level to that temptation. You know what it's like for that temptation to leave because you succumb to it. Jesus never did. He knows what it is to be perfectly obedient, which is what we are called to do and what he can make us to be. He gets it. And so what ought our response to be this morning? Wherever you're at this morning, whatever pain and suffering you are enduring, however far God seems to be from you, however deeply you feel like that is your fault, the worst thing you can do is run and hide from him because, first of all, you can't. He's God. And secondly, he is your only hope. He is the only one who can help. Run. Run to Jesus. If you are here this morning and you don't know him, you still fear death. You don't know your relationship with God. You don't know what it is. You're trying your best, but you have a nagging suspicion that it's not good enough. You're right, it isn't. But there is one who was, and he was on your behalf. Run, run to Jesus. If you are here this morning, and you have been sinning the same sin for 10, 15, 20, 40, 50 years, run to Jesus. Run to him. If you are suffering and in pain, and Jesus seems far away, and perhaps even this morning seems somewhat malevolent in your eyes, don't run away from him. Run, run to Jesus. He understands. He gets it. He's one of us. And as he sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven, at this very moment, he is still one of us. And one day when we see him, he still will be one of us and will show to us the scars in his wrists and in his feet, those scars he bears for us. He didn't just become one of us for a period of time. He became one of us from the moment of his incarnation to all, through all eternity. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and also our elder brother. What amazing grace. Let's look him in prayer this morning. Father, it is our deepest longing to be fully known and fully loved, as our brother Timothy Keller has said. 
To be fully loved without being fully known is superficial at best and unreal, and we know that. To have somebody love a version of us that is not the real us is false, deceptive, and fake. And Father, to be fully known and not fully loved is one of our greatest fears. And yet you fully know us and fully love us, as does your Son and your Spirit. And you sent your Son to be one of us, to experience all that it is to be one of us, with the notable exception of being sinless. Thanks be to you, Father. And then to go to the cross and in those three hours of palpable darkness feel the weight of our sin. Sin that he had never committed. Sin he did not have to atone for. To be the high priest and also the sacrifice. What grace is this? So Father, help us to know this morning that when we sin, we run to you, not away. When we suffer, we run to you, not away. When we feel inadequate, we run to you, not away. You are our only hope. And we give you all the glory this morning, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.